A Night of Another Sort Introduction by Gary Deneal Read by special guest Hugh Deneal As a child visiting in the home of my grandparents, Guy A. and Lula Deneal, I heard Grandpa and his older sister Mary Parks talking about Old Burger. Hearing the name of Burger made me think of the Booger Man of Bad Dreamland and the ground beef patties we often had for dinner. I was confused. My grandfather and his sister had their reasons for mentioning the name of a man who had been hanged more than two decades earlier. His memory still troubled them, perhaps even marked them. It certainly affected Grandma, who would all but shudder when years later Grandpa told me about Charlie Berger and the old days in southeastern Illinois. I would learn in time that my dad's family was only one of many in Saline County that were adversely affected by the gangster. In a way, my relatives were lucky. They suffered, at worst, a few sleepless nights and some stolen property. Still, listening to Aunt Mary and Grandpa reminisce gave me a feel for local history that even the best books could not deliver. Perhaps that had something to do with the way the old folks had of recalling their past, and besides, Grandpa was a noted storyteller in the area. The year they remembered was 1926. Local gambler Dan Lockwood got word to Aunt Mary's husband, Hosey Parks, that Berger was planning to kill him during Steve George's trial, which was soon to be held in Harrisburg. The gangster planned to use the machine gun he kept hidden beneath his heavy overcoat, or so the story went. For his own protection during the trial, Parks borrowed a pistol from one of Sheriff John Small's deputies. Of course, it is unlikely that Berger really carried a machine gun into the courtroom, but Park's belief that such brazenness was possible tells us much about that lawless time. That incident, along with events leading up to it, can be found in the first edition of A Night of Another Sort. What is not included concerns something that happened after Steve George's conviction for Robin Parks' store at Rudman. Written up as a hero on page one of the Daily Register, my schoolteacher grandfather suddenly had more acclaim than he had ever known. This despite his assertion that it was his brother-in-law who deserved most of the credit for capturing Berger's henchman, the notorious Steve George. That small matter notwithstanding, the Saline County Sheriff decided on his own that Guy A. Deneal was just the fellow to track down and arrest other local desperados. In fact, Small knew of one such fugitive who was thought to be hiding out with a bootlegger relative in a ramshackle shack located between Rudment and Williams Hill. Late one night, a car drove up to my grandparents' home near Rudman. Believing some of Steve George's gangster friends were paying an unfriendly visit, Grandpa slipped behind the door, and his hand was a loaded shotgun. Then came the knock. There was no response from within the house. My terrified grandmother held close her two young sons and expected the worst. A voice called out Grandpa's name. Sheriff John Small had arrived at an ungodly hour to ask Grandpa a favor. Would he consider apprehending a certain party known to be hiding just north of Williams Hill? Grandpa thought a moment before declining the honor. After all, Sheriff Small was getting paid to risk his life making arrests, while Guy A. Deneal was only an underpaid school teacher who had inadvertently helped bring to justice a notorious gunman. Rightly or wrongly, Grandpa never quite forgave Sheriff Small for terrorizing his family that night and for making what he believed to be an unreasonable request. Grandpa also recalled having been followed on the sidewalks of Harrisburg by Steve George's brother, and he told the sheriff about it. John Small dismissed the incident, saying the brother probably wanted Steve's pistol, which was known to be in his possession. 
Thinking one of his sons might get careless with the weapon, he later gave the gun to Uncle Hosey when the latter lived in New Mexico. Parks traded the pistol for another gun, thus losing in the Southwest a bit of Southern Illinois history. So due to special circumstances when growing up, I heard much about Berger's dark side, and little if anything about his charitable activities in and around Harrisburg. Reading Paul M. Engel's Bloody Williamson reinforced first impressions of a local gangster. In 1953, on the third floor of Hart's department store, which was located on the northwest corner of Harrisburg Square, I bought my copy of the first edition of this classic work. Remember that I was nine years old, and that my family did not yet own a television set. As dark on the inside as its cloth cover was on the outside, Bloody Williamson found this young reader eager to turn the next page, only to be appalled by what was there. No wonder Grandma Danielle preferred not to talk about the good old days. I read Paul M. Engel's book with a mingling of fascination and horror. The several chapters devoted to the Heron Massacre were scenes from hell. Edgar Allan Poe might have written the section devoted to Charlie Berger and the Sheltons. As with Jim Berger and Geronimo, books I read over and over at Rubman's one-room school because the other books in our school library were boring, I read Bloody Williamson many times, learning by heart its darkest passages. Strangest of all, one of the leading characters in the book was still practicing law in Harrisburg. Not until late 1975, while researching a three-part article on Charlie Berger for Outdoor Illinois, did I meet this man. Arleo Boswell, in his law office on the fifth floor of the Harrisburg National Bank building. In 1983, the year of his death, I was still interviewing the elderly attorney from time to time and was still learning that the deeper one peered into the story of Boswell's remarkable life, the more puzzled one became. Was it possible this wise and kindly old gentleman could have once been associated with one of Illinois' most violent gangsters, himself a study in contradictions? Between 1975 and 1983, others were interviewed who had known Berger, including ex-gang members, Berger's former wife, and a prominent ex-member of the Shelton Gang. Listening to the old men who had spent behind prison bars what should have been their best years, one could feel the glamour of the Roaring Twenties slipping away, to be replaced by the sad realization that here was a tale of senseless mayhem and sordid intrigue. More than once in my presence, Arleo Boswell referred to his years as state's attorney in Williamson County during the 1920s as that crazy time. No man epitomized that craziness better than Charlie Berger did. Lives were destroyed as if they were moths before flame. Often the giddy refrain from the Charleston could not be heard above the deadly monotone of the machine gun chatter. The shadow of the hangman's noose served to chill the laughter spilling from the many roadhouses. Even the affable Arleo Boswell, who seemed to view almost whimsically the various twists and turns his own life had taken, had much to regret from ever having known a certain gang leader of dark complexion who walked with a distinctive swagger. The only surviving member of the Burger Gang to retain an aura of menace was Riley Alabama Simmons. Simmons insisted that Berger was no more colorful or interesting than the other bootleggers and criminals he had known both in and out of prison. Did he talk about his days out west? I asked, hoping the question would trigger a striking response. No. Came his terse reply. Though so he did mention selling newspapers as a boy. A one-time member of the Shelton gang, 
Charles Blackie Harris found most of the characters in my book to be essentially worthless, the exception being Mrs. Laurie Price. Harris was a realist and had no illusion that his own role as a counterfeiter, bootlegger, and killer would earn him even a murmur of honorable mention from future historians. Charlie Harris was hard to figure. On the one hand, he was personable, grandfatherly in appearance and demeanor. At the Vienna Minimum Security Prison where he was serving time for murder, he had attended church regularly, though more to make the minister feel appreciated than for spiritual nourishment. He was forever dispensing advice to fellow prisoners, many of them young enough to be his great-grandchildren. During his long lifetime, he had been blamed for many killings, including those of former pals Carl and Bernie Shelton, and at one time he had suffered the dubious distinction of being the oldest man on the FBI's most wanted list. Yet in person, he seemed almost delicate, as if he were an artist at heart. He also seemed obsessed with the idea of being a good neighbor to others when he finally got out of the penitentiary. To better appreciate my dilemma, try picturing an elderly Mr. Rogers of a hitman serving time in the slammer. Berger's ex-wife Beatrice viewed her former husband as a man of limited ability who had unlimited ambition. His long talks with Harrisburg's leading businessmen seemed pointless to her and unbearably boring. Imagine that! The most talked about, most written about individual ever to call Harrisburg home often bored his wife to distraction. Other, more dramatic surprises were still to come, one so unlikely that a writer of realistic fiction would have immediately discarded it. In 1929, former Williamson County State's Attorney Arlie O. Boswell was unlucky enough to find himself in Leavenworth alongside men he had prosecuted in the past, including Monroe Blackie Arms of the Shelton Gang and Riley Alabama Simmons of the Burger Gang. Three years earlier, Arms and Simmons would have been gunning for each other. Now they were the closest of friends, according to their fellow prisoner Charlie Blackie Harris, who chuckled when recalling this amazing turnaround. Together they plotted to slide a knife blade into the innards of fellow prisoner Boswell. Seeing his opportunity at last, Simmons made the plunge, though not to fatal effect. Sixty-four years after that knifing attack, Arlie O. Boswell found himself in the Marion Memorial Hospital with a roommate who kept begging the nurses for a knife. The account given here is based on a June 1, 1983 entry in my journal and refers to an incident that occurred a few days earlier. I recorded it immediately after getting a telephone call from Boswell. His roommate heard that his name was Boswell and said he used to know a man by that name who was the prosecuting attorney of Williamson County. When Boswell asked his name, the fellow said Riley Simmons. After much cross-examination, Boswell became convinced he was rooming with the same Riley Simmons who tried to cut his throat at Leavenworth. He arrived at this conclusion not only from what the man said about going to Berger's place and working for Helen Holbrook, but also by his actions, which including getting out of bed every few minutes and going to the bathroom, where he put on two shirts and three pairs of pants, and he was always looking for his knife. Boswell said that as a young man, Simmons was about half there, and along with Steve George, he was one of the more dangerous members of the gang. For that reason, Boswell, who was in the hospital to have his eyes operated on, got no sleep that night. On the surface, Boswell and Simmons had little in common. One personable, philosophical, a fountain of hard-won wisdom, and the other a recluse, unkempt and unloved. 
and yet the orbits of their sometimes violent lives were oddly in conjunction. At the beginning of our telephone conversation, Boswell asked if I believed in coincidence, and when I said I did, he said he did too. Both men died within a month of each other in Marion, Illinois, the county seat of Bloody Williamson, and both men were helpful to me in writing the book. Years earlier, both Dan Malkovich and Arleo Boswell warned me about visiting Simmons at his isolated home. He was the overseer of a coon dog club located near Culp, which explains why so many hounds were running about and yapping. Their words came vividly to mind when during an interview with the man, I noticed that Riley was trying to repair a big wire pliers. At one point, when he was standing directly behind me, it was all I could do not to turn around to better watch him, but doing so would have made my fears too obvious. As it turned out, he was friendly enough, though certainly not effusive. He even gave short answers to a few of my many questions. Only once did he show irritation, and that was when I asked if his career in crime had left emotional scars on his parents. You know it did. He told about seeing Lori Price at 100 nightclubs. He mentioned Mother Lee's, a famous sporting house located on the south side of Benton. There were a lot of sporting houses in those days. I would see him once more, dying of cancer in the same hospital room where Boswell had been his roommate a few days earlier. Riley said he was present during the fight at the Masonic Temple in Heron in 1926. Yet he was there when High Pockets McQuay was shot, but he did not know who killed him, nor did he know who killed Ethel Price. He did mumble something about a Shawneetown incident, which led me to believe he may have killed the man found north of that town and whose body it was never identified. Riley and I had a mutual friend, a much-tattooed ex-moonshiner, ex-train robber who was nicknamed Terrible, while in the slammer at Menard. Once while Alabama and Terrible were standing at a urinal, Simmons asked if he had ever killed a man. Stunned by the question, Terrible said no. One ex-gangster thought Simmons had it easy when in the pen, because while the rest of them did hard labor, Riley posed as a psychotic and thus got to sit around staring at the wall alongside the true psychotic. But Terrible recalled that Bama had trouble at Menard. The following account is based on my July 23, 1983 journal entry. There was the time Riley sat down in the middle of the long table they called the cutting table. They had been eating watermelon, and as usual, a truck was parked nearby. The rinds were to be thrown into the truck bed, but Riley, who was fed up with the arrangement, threw the rind and his cap in the box where the silverware went and threw his silverware in the truck. Then he started running. They caught him, of course, and added some extra time to his sentence. Bama was very uneducated, his friend said. Simmons had been dead for nearly a month. Terrible did not get to the cemetery for the burial because of car transmission trouble in Ziegler. But he did go to the funeral home where he met Simmons' younger sister. He felt she was the one who saw that the final rites were kept low-key. She was nice, though, and asked how long he had known her brother. He replied, Since the early 1920s. She also talked with two other men as they stood before her brother's casket. One was a coon hunter. Riley's white shirt was open at the collar, and he wore checkered pants. He looked real good in the casket, his friend recalled. We weren't put here to stay, he added. Sure enough, within a year and a half, Terrible was also gone. Some months later, a relative of another friend of Riley Simmons delivered a chilling account of Ethel Price's death that allegedly came from Simmons himself. The plan had been to frighten Lori's wife, not murder. 
However, as soon as they arrived at the site of the abandoned mine, Connie Ritter insisted Ethel walk with him a certain distance. After she refused to have sex with him and began crying and screaming, he either killed her or had someone do it. Cold, cold, double cold, said a St. Louis policeman in reference to the dark deeds attributed to Charles Blackie Harris. He could just have easily have been talking about the relatively young man in the 1920s, who was a very old man in Harrisburg in the 1970s, proved to be one of my best sources. He told a chilling tale of how he had gotten his friend drunk, lured him into a cornfield, and shot him in the back of the head. The killer was tried and acquitted. Why did you do it, I asked, thinking he would use self-defense as justification for such a terrible crime. Because he snitched, was his casual reply. In my naive way, I then asked if this killing troubled his conscience these many years since. No, I never think about it unless somebody brings it up. He is dead now, as are almost all of the gang members who contributed to the book, but I still wonder if his conscience ever caught up with him before he died. I do know he was an avowedly religious man, often testifying at length during revivals. One of Berger's bartenders told of having his own roadhouse bombed by a rival gangster. He blamed the explosion on Pat Pulliam and how, following the excitement, he walked down the highway as naked as a jaybird. After all, he was in the building when it was blown up. He still remembered the name of the woman who saw him on the road. A longtime buddy of this man remembered seeing Lyle Shag Warsham sitting in a car parked outside the barbecue stand at Shady Rest while Burger's men were inside the building deciding Warsham's fate. He just sat there, said the old man, shaking his head at the absurdity of it all. In his place, I would have run.